0: Right now, what we have to see is the rebuilding of the Hertz brand. Their interim CEO is with Eric Schatzker on the floor. Eric, good morning. Tom, good morning to you. I'm down here at
1: Times Square. This is heart of the NASDAQ, and I'm with Tom Wagner of Nighthead Capital Management, Greg O'Hara of Sertaris, and Mark Fields, the interim CEO of Hertz. This trio, Tom, is responsible for one of the most remarkable corporate turnarounds in American history. Back in May of 2020, Hertz filed for bankruptcy. Last night, it went public again at $29 a share, giving the company a market value of some $13 billion. What a remarkable turnaround. Greg, I'd like to begin with you. Hertz stunned, not just the auto industry, but the financial markets with this order for 100,000 Teslas. Why make such an early bet on electric vehicles? Why take the risk? of being the first mover.
2: super easy. As you know, we're in the travel industry. We've got, we've got investments all across the travel industry, and providing people with the products they want uh, was an easy decision for us. So we know our corporate travelers want electric vehicles to go visit their clients and, and, and do business in. We know our leisure travelers want electric vehicles. It's a great way for them to try electric vehicle without committing, and specifically, they want Teslas. They, they like Teslas, and they'd like to rent Teslas. So in combination with understanding the demand is there and an opportunity to get a very hot product, an amazing product, that allows us to put it in the hands of people who want it, was an easy decision for us.
1: Tom, at the IPO price of $29 a share, you've pretty much tripled your money in the space of four months, which in and of itself is remarkable. As you know, there are some skeptics out there, haters, you might call them haters, they don't believe in your story, they say, Perch doesn't have a firm order for Teslas. They say Elon Musk is dumping Model 3s. What can you say right here, right now, to address some of that, let's call it, confusion? Well, I think that there's no question that there's
3: an incredible amount of demand for our products generally. We we have uh, a very robust environment for the rental car industry. We expect that to continue we're very focused on bringing products into our fleet as Greg mentioned that we know people want to rent there's no question they want to rent Teslas there's no question that they want to rent you know higher value vehicles from all the OEMs there's no question it's a big move afoot to electrification so you know for the people who doubt what we're doing um, you know we we would simply ask that they stay tuned and uh, watch what we have to come because we think that this is just the beginning of an effort to put Hertz at the center of mobility in a a way to serve our OEM partners and to serve our customers to provide a better rental experience and a better corporate
1: partnership with those parties. Mark, these other guys here, Tom and Greg, they're financial guys, right? You're a real economy CEO. You ran (laughs) Ford. You know all about operations and execution. What are the biggest challenges Hertz has to overcome in this move to electrification and the transition to what we might call shared mobility?
4: Yeah, well, first off, first off, I, I don't look at them as challenges. I look at them as huge opportunities because we're really staking ourselves out, I think, a very important place in, as Tom mentioned, this mobility ecosystem, wherever Mobility 2.0 goes. Obviously, clearly, as we look to lead in electrification, making sure we get our charging infrastructure in place, that's happening as we speak, and then be able to, you know, that first-mover advantage of learning how to manage these large electrified fleets, I think is going to give us a very big competitive advantage, not only in the near term, to, as Tom and Greg said, to get customers into these vehicles that they want to drive, but more importantly, you know, in business, you have to start looking around the corner. So as you think about autonomy down the road, those large electrified fleets, I think we're going to be well positioned to work with a lot of different partners to make that happen.
1: That's an important point. Some people think of this as just an EV play for rental car customers. What,
4: what do you mean by these large, what is what is fleet management and why is it important? Well, first off, it steps back in, in about our overall corporate strategy. And you mentioned, this is not only a turnaround, this is a transformation of Hertz. And looking around the corner, you have to look at the big trends, right? Mobility, uh, you got electrification, shared mobility, connected cars, autonomy, and we're positioning the company for the things that we do better than anybody else, which is manage large fleets. We do it economically, consistently, all around the world. That is going to need, that, that, the, the ability to manage those fleets in mobility 2.0, somebody's going to have to do it, and we're the best at that, and we want to position ourselves. Avis, as you might know, was trash-talking
1: Hertz on the conference call just a few days ago. Knowing what you know, Tom, directly from the manufacturers, I might add, about the current and future supply of electric vehicles, what are the chances that Avis or maybe Enterprise is going to catch up with you?
3: I think that, that over time we'll see all of the rental car companies transition to EVs and I think that that will happen because it's what we believe consumers want today. Uh, there's a, certainly a huge percentage of the population that really wants to to drive electric vehicles and we think that will only happen with increasing speed as time passes. So I think it's a natural evolution uh, for the industry to, to take. And I think you're seeing that on the OEM side. You're gonna see it on the product delivery side from the rental car companies. You're gonna see it in ride hail. So um, I think this is the first step of a large transformation and, and a process of bringing electric vehicles into mainstream, and you know we're happy to be, you know, playing our role in it. You know, our goal is to provide our customers with what they want, and we believe that this, you know, this effort really hits the nail on the head in that regard.
1: Now, I want to point out that unless you've been living under a rock, you will have seen that Hertz has a pitch man. In its new commercials for these electric vehicles, these Teslas, he happens to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. His name is Tom Brady. Tom, here's what I've been wondering: Why would a Super Bowl winning quarterback you choose to star in ads for a rental car company? What is it about the Hertz story and the transformation plan that resonates with Tom Brady? Well, first of
5: all, good morning.
6: Uh, nice to see you. Got some great guys up up there on the uh, stage with you and wish I could be there in New York but I got football practice today so I got to do my <laughs> job um, I think obviously it starts with incredible leadership and I think Tom Greg and Mark uh, really provide that and uh, you know I've got great faith in the leadership team and I think they're building and reinventing a great business um, I've been someone who's uh, been a customer of Hertz for a long time. And I think their move to electric vehicles is super important. And when Tom talked about what the opportunity was, um, you know, for him in this business, uh, I certainly wanted to do my best to help promote people who are changing the world in a really positive way. So uh, we talk so much about sustainability and um, actions that you can do on a daily basis that are sustainable for now in the future. And, um, you know, this is one of those areas that you know, I feel really strongly about, and I love partnering with, uh, you know, a great business, a great business team that has a great mission. So it was a a really fun campaign, and I hope people really enjoy it.
1: You drive an EV, right, Tom?
6: I do, and I have for uh, for quite a few years.
1: Which model, and what was it that made you an EV convert? Well, I've had a Tesla for about four
6: years, and um, again, I think it's a it's kind of the direction the world is heading. And I think for me, it was about being really conscious about um, obviously the impact that we all have on, on our planet and um, the things that we can do as individuals to um, make progress in the areas of sustainability. And um, I love the cars. Uh, there's a lot of companies that have followed suit, obviously. And, and as the guys up there, as Tom, Greg, Mark, talked about that's kind of where where everyone's heading and um you know it's a really cool time to be a car lover and i certainly am and tom always gives me uh, nobody loves cars as much as tom wagner believe me <laughs> and uh, he always kind of keeps me in tune with what's going on and uh, he's really on the forefront of of the really cool aspects of of uh, car making
1: tom you're lending the credibility of the tom brady brand to the hertz brand what is it about sustainability that resonates with your personal philosophy and are you deliberately trying to raise awareness around topics such as climate change? I think it's absolutely and I think it's
6: um in a really broad, you know, uh, scheme of things, it's about raising consciousness about, you know, what sustainability means. I've you know, correlate so many of the things that are happening, you know, in my personal life to, you know, my business life. And, um, you know, I've thought so much about sustainability of my own body and what I need to do in order to treat my body a certain way so that it can continue to perform at a high level. And I think businesses are doing the same thing. You know, people want to understand um, areas in which they can be more sustainable, um, certainly to help the environment and, you know, raising consciousness through electric vehicles and, you know, things that we do on a daily basis, you know, as we talked about the mobility of, of where we all are. I'm someone that travels a lot, you know, I'm very mobile. But if I can do that in a more conscious way, um, you know, I think that's a great thing for the future.
1: Tom, a quick question back to Greg O'Hara here. Uh, Tom Brady has redefined sustainability as it concerns the human body. You guys are now, in, all of you are in the travel business. Hertz is in the, tra- why, is, is sustainability the new theme, the new mantra? And travel?
2: It's not lost on me the dichotomy between me and Tom Brady um, uh, uh, and, and and our sustainable bodies. Um, mine's more disposable, I think, than dis- sustainable. Um, you know, one of the things that, that people don't realize is, you know, Tom said a lot of things ab- about why he does it. One of the things that we can do as financial investors is promote an investment opportunity to people that allows them to invest profitably in in the um, environmentally conscious area, right? And and if you look at what we've what we've created here, it's an opportunity of a business that creates actual cash flow in the near term, and we can transform hundreds of thousands of vehicles and electrify them. Um, Not just that, but turn them into robo-taxis. Our offer, we believe, uh, to to Uber creates better opportunities for Uber drivers. Um, uh, And and we've got all kinds of things in the the pipe. Not only that, but, you know, the rental car experience has been the same for 50 years. And we're going to try to automate that rental car experience so that when you get to the airport, you just show up, hold your phone to the car, and go.
1: Greg O'Hara, Mark Fields, the two Toms, one more recognizable than the other, Tom Wagner, and, of course, Tom Brady, we thank you all. And back to yet another recognizable Tom, Tom Keane from Bloomberg headquarters. Well,
0: Eric Shasker, thank you. Tony is with us right now. He's the chief executive officer of Marriott. We're going to dive into an extended conversation uh, here, Tony. I want to talk about Marriott optimism. You're leading the country with construction of 166,174 rooms right now. I assume that's globally um, as well. Tell us about the optimism in the middle of a pandemic that gets you to build 1,200 projects.
7: Yeah, we actually, good morning, by the way, Tom. It's It's good to be back. We have about uh, over 200,000 rooms under construction globally. And I think that optimism uh, is really based on our belief about the long-term future of travel and tourism. Because of some of the supply chain issues, we right. are seeing some de- delays in construction. So many of these hotels won't open for one, two, maybe even three are, years. Are,
0: are you seeing it? I don't mean to interrupt, but it's no, so please. important. I know John and Lisa have a ton of questions, too. Lisa's looking for a new Marriott right where she lives uh, to, to go in. Tony, I'm looking here at your big impediment, which is the U.S. government. How big an impediment has the Biden administration been in their reticence to open up as we improve in this terrible pandemic?
7: Well, while we were disappointed and lobbied the administration hard to get the borders open, yesterday was a big day for us, obviously, seeing international borders open. Uh, I've been traveling extensively internationally, and there is enormous pent-up demand from international travelers to come to the U.S. So I think t- yesterday was a, a watershed day for the travel and tourism industries.
8: funny we're all living here. The demand is back big time, has been for most of this year, you're aware of that. How are you meeting that at the moment, just in terms of getting the talent on board when you need to, where you need them? How difficult is it at the moment, Tony?
7: It's improving, Jonathan, as you you know, one in five of the jobs that were lost in this country during the pandemic were in the travel and tourism sector. Uh, We've hired more than 40,000 folks here in the U.S. since the beginning of the year. Uh, The challenge for us is the most acute uh, difficulties we're having are in the markets where demand has come back most quickly. Um, But we think we've got a really compelling offering for uh, future Marriott Associates, and we're seeing really good progress, both in terms of the increases in the applicant pool and the number of folks that we're able to bring on board.
8: Have you had to shift the price to make that happen, Tony? Or is that something just time has healed over Uh, the last year?
7: Yeah, there's a bit of of wage pressure, again, in some of the markets that have recovered most quickly. But again, a lot of our focus is on uh, uh, career growth, training and development opportunities, and in some markets, some one-time incentives uh, to fill those vacancies.
5: How much have you been able to pass along the costs to the end consumer, to people renting a room?
7: Well, the the really encouraging thing we saw in the third quarter, Lisa, uh, we said that that uh, revenue per available room globally was only twenty six percent behind where we were same quarter nineteen. But interestingly, average daily rate, which really equates to pricing power, was only 4% off where we were in the same quarter of 19. So we've seen really strong pricing power through the recovery.
5: When it comes to hiring, Tony, I do wonder how many people just said, who used to work in the industry, I don't wanna deal with the hospitality industry anymore. It was really hard for me to be sent home for more than a year. I don't wanna to have to deal with people when I'm still worried about a virus. It's gonna take more than just a higher salary to get me back. How much is that what you're facing when you try to bring on uh, more people?
7: I spoke at a CEO panel yesterday at the NYU Investment Conference, and as you might expect, this was the, the most significant topic, and it was really around the work we need to do as an industry deliberately to identify to prospective future employees the opportunities that exist. I think travel and tourism for many years was viewed as a safe harbor set of industries. And to your point, the impact of the pandemic has shaken some of Mm -hmm. that confidence. So we've got some real work.
0: I want to talk about the tension that you deal with every day. You have provided leadership with Save Venice over the travesty of the boats and the ships right up against the Basilica of San Marco. The view from the Grand Canal Room of the St. Regis is pretty good. What's that go for a night?
7: Uh, as high as we can go as high as you reason. can go, but it's, um, it's, uh, uh, an extraordinary hotel. I was just there three weeks ago. The renovation is stunning. How
0: do you cut this then? How do you cut all the population you want back? So Venice will sink versus your save Venice efforts.
7: Well, it's an interesting dynamic, and it's not limited to Venice. There are many cities and and, uh, tourist destinations around the world that are wrestling with this notion of over-tourism.
0: John, John, I can see you, John, in the Grand Canal Room of the St. Regis, compliments
8: of the CEO of Marriott. This sounds very personal to you, Tom. It does. Not to me, because we know there's an annual visit that you make to Venice well, every single year around Christmas time. I just time. think
0: the St. Regis has a certain view of the Grand Canal, it's sort of okay. out there with
8: Gucci behind it, it oh works. God. That's Italy, Tony, yeah. let's talk about this and put you on the spot just a little bit. You've Please. been going around the world, looking across geographies, working out, who's got this right right now? You're perfectly positioned to talk about it. Everybody's got a different policy, you've got zero COVID over in China, you've got very different tolerance levels around the world. Who's got it right right now, as far as you're concerned, operating a business there?
7: I'm not sure anybody has it perfect, and that's not a criticism. Uh, the, the most challenging thing for all of us that are trying to navigate this, there's no playbook. None of us were around for the last great pandemic, and uh, it's so unpredictable. Uh, you, you mentioned China uh, during our second quarter earnings call. We talked about the fact that China was back to pre-pandemic levels, not only in aggregate, but in each of our demand segments. You fast forward a quarter, you saw some outbreaks, you saw 150 cities locked down, and that had exactly the impact on demand you would expect. And so I think we're, we're trying to share best practices. We're looking at, at cities and countries that seem to have it right, but I'm not sure there's a perfect solution.
8: Tony, good to catch up. Can you take Tom? to Venice with you next time. Just give us a break and you enjoy. <laughs> Anytime, I'll pay for the boat. <laughs> Sounds go. good to me. Sounds good to all of us. You have no
0: idea, John, what those boats cost. The oh power boats and particularly one that Marriott would do, those gorgeous wooden boat thingies they got. Why the do we Rivas. feel like
8: we're a template for his yeah, planning a vacation? This, this has nothing to do. With a proper interview, list and you everything see me to a, do John, with can Tom's you, vacation can You place. see
0: me in a gondola? I mean, I'm I can see you, you in the
8: back, Tom, making it happen. <laughs> I, can, I can see you making it happen. Tony, good to catch up, sir, as always. Look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. For Tony Capuano, there. Thank you, sir.
0: We are thrilled that Claudia Somm joins us today, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, but really one of the most articulate voices in um, what I'm going to call the social policy of the Fed. Claudia Somm, should we pick a Fed chairman based on politics and social belief?
9: So absolutely not. But the reality is the Federal Reserve is in Washington, D.C., and it is impossible to escape politics. And all of those positions, and Biden's now got five, he's getting to appoint. These are political appointees. So I firmly disagree with people who have been advocating for Biden to have his chair, like knocking Powell out just because he was a registered Republican and Trump put him in place. But I mean, You know, if Biden wants to do that, that is his choice.
0: What is so interesting, Claudia, is if you look at the Wikipedia for both Powell and Brainerd, it is absolutely stunning the different path from Wesleyan Mm -hmm. College or Wesleyan University, I should say, and Princeton University. Have you ever seen a separation of two candidates as we see now?
9: I'm not sure about that I think the because Greenspan was there so long uh, I don't what I have been adamant about is that Powell and Brainerd are an amazing team like together they do so much more and I think this could very well be because they come at it from different backgrounds uh, Powell has looked to, to Brainerd for a lot of intellectual leadership I think they would be an like a really knock it out of the park. Powell is chair, Layla's vice chair, that's often a chair in waiting position. Uh... I just, I think the Fed is navigating the most difficult period in its history since the Volcker era, and you you absolutely need the best people in all five of those appointed positions.
5: Claudia, one of the differences that people have pointed to between uh, Lael Brainard as well as Jay Powell is that Lael Brainard might be willing to look past inflation and actually increase the target a bit more to allow inflation to run at perhaps a more persistent three percent rather than a two percent. Do you agree with that? That assessment of her view and the potential for that to really shift fed policy
9: so i think jay is is as committed to the new framework which importantly and we're going to talk about it a lot more this year has broad-based and inclusive employment i truly believe jay is the real deal on that leo absolutely is and, and I I don't think we have a choice. Now, whether we're moving toward a 3% target, that's a completely different discussion. And neither of them is going to, I don't think they're gonna need to go there, right? But but I think either of them will do what it takes and are committed to really elevating on par the maximum employment mandate. And that's really exciting. This is not the Fed of even a few years ago.
0: Claudia, we have to leave it there. Too short a visit. We look forward to speaking to you seriously in the coming days. Claudia Song of the Jane Family Institute here is front and center, a changing of the guard at the Fed. We'll see where that goes with Powell and Brainerd.
8: Joining us from the COP26 summit is Ola Kalanias, the CEO of Daimler. Ola, I want to start right there, and then we can indulge you and talk about some of the bigger issues where you are right now. On the supply chain, are you starting to see things improve? And if you are, where specifically, sir?
10: Well, this year we have been mostly affected by the semiconductor situation. And uh, uh, we believe that the quarter three... Uh, was the quarter that was most effective and we are seeing a gradual improvement in quarter four and going into next year but there is still an element of uncertainty here and the main chip suppliers have said that there will be restrictions also throughout the year of 2022 so we're not quite out of the woods yet uh, but we like to believe that we're kind of seeing the worst behind us. Mr. Kalanis, it is the most interesting thing to see
0: Daimler run by a gentleman from the north, and I'm sure that's been culturally fascinating. Culturally, there's a shift in America as well, led by Mary Barra at General Motors. From where you sit, how do you perceive the effort of General Motors, Ford and the other, in America to catch up with you on electric vehicle engineering?
10: The whole auto industry is in a major transformation as we speak. And uh, ultimately, uh, we will go to a world with zero emission mobility. That is what we at Daimler has committed to through our ambition 2039, uh, more than 10 years ahead of the Paris climate agreement. We want to go CO2 neutral, neutral, not just with the product, but across the whole value chain. And we observe. uh, 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 old and new competitors moving in the same direction.
0: What is the technical constraint? I remember over 10 years ago at the Detroit Auto Show, staring in awe at what you were doing in Powertrain, and it was a nascent part of green. What is the industry and Daimler's constraint forward to get this done?
10: There has been a massive development on the technological side, much better energy density on the battery cells, more efficient powertrains, so that now we're, in a, we're on the verge uh, of having uh, mass electric mobility possible, and that's where we're making our bets as Mercedes-Benz and in investing uh, from 2025 forward in our new vehicle architectures going electric only. For the whole market to transfer into a zero emission electric only scenario, what needs to go hand in hand with this effort on the product side is infrastructure. We as an industry are investing in that as well, but this is a bigger one where uh, across industries need to work with each other and governments to make commitments to build up an infrastructure everywhere for electric mobility that's the one thing that is going to also decide the pace of this transformation.
5: In an interview last year, Ola, you said that in the next 10 years, you expect the biggest growth for your company to be in China. Has that changed given some of the COVID policies, given some of the infrastructure challenges that the country faces as it tries to curb some of the leverage and spending?
10: Uh, COVID has been a stress test for the whole industry and uh, supply chains, as we mentioned before. Uh, But we are uh, very clear in our belief that China, in terms of market growth in this decade, uh, uh, represents the biggest absolute growth potential. That does not mean that we're not going to focus on the other markets that we have, North America, Europe, and so on, uh, Japan, Korea, and other important markets for us, for luxury mobility, especially sustainable luxury mobility, uh, we see uh, uh, promising growth potential in this decade, but we have to go through this transformation at the same time. So uh, uh, the forefront of our investment effort is to put in uh, our capital into new innovative technologies, turn the powertrain CO2 neutral and at the same time build up software architectures, uh, the car as a service, subscription models, tapping into new revenue pools that we haven't had before.
8: Ola, just quickly, I heard from my good friend and colleague Matthew Miller, he wants to know how long the waiting list is for the electric G-Wagon, do we know?
10: We announced the electric G-Wagon at the Munich Auto Show, and I was overwhelmed with messages from friends uh, and fans of the Mercedes brand. Everybody loves it. They want it. We're going to launch it in the first half of 2024. You better sign up early because the line is going to be pretty long, I
8: guess. <laughs> I'm sure Matt's already done that. Olo, yeah. thank you, sir. <laughs> Great to catch up. Olo Kalenius there, the CEO. Hi, John. I, I, I'm sorry, John. I can see him. Can you? S- I can see Matt in the electric G-Wagon. Can't you see him going around with that one, Lisa? Mm. Doesn't he have one already? Yeah. I thought he has one in Berlin.
5: You think an electric one? I think he actually likes the
8: guzzling.
5: That's not <laughs> that, That's that specific thing.
0: Glasgow has been more than interesting. A lot of what we expected and some surprises along the way. But no one is surprised that immediately following Glasgow and what we do about energy, the debate is, well... In Scotland, If you move from Glasgow and you go west of Edinburgh, up the shore of Aberdeen, and then you go north, north, north to the Shetland Islands, there is an oil field. The First Minister of Scotland joins us this morning. Minister thank you so much for joining Bloomberg. This is an oil field and I guess the thank decisions you. in Westminster in that. Where is the common ground on energy that you share now with the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom?
11: I think the common ground is that we are both very committed to the transition to a net zero future and as part of that to building up the renewable energy capacity for Scotland and the UK. Scotland has got massive potential in wind energy in particular, onshore and offshore, but also some real potential in new and emerging technologies, carbon capture and storage for example. Uh, There's also, uh, I think, an understanding and perhaps The UK government and I don't entirely agree on the detail of this, but we must accelerate the move away from fossil fuels. We've got to do that carefully in a way that protects the people who are currently employed in that sector in Scotland, around 100,000 jobs, and do it in a way that doesn't see us importing more oil and gas, but instead moving to the alternatives. But the world and the planet demands that we accelerate that transition away from oil and gas and fossil fuels generally. First
0: Minister, we had a conversation with the Secretary of Energy of the United States the other day, and her fallback position was that oil is a world price, and that here you are with Shell saying that if you develop this field, it will allow for direct investment in energy savings in the decades ahead, in climate change advantages in the decades ahead. Can you contain the benefit of these wells to make wind farms in the Shetland Islands and so much more?
11: Scotland has uh, enjoyed uh, the benefits of oil and gas now for 40, 50 uh, years. Uh, Some would say we haven't enjoyed the economic benefits of that sufficiently, but that's another uh, matter. But we have vast potential in renewable energy. Our challenge now is to develop the renewable and low-carbon sources of energy so that we can accelerate the the move away from fossil fuels because we see from the International Energy Agency and other very respected voices that the challenge... The challenge of limiting global warming, the challenge, frankly, of saving the planet, means that we cannot simply go on and on and on, extracting oil and gas forever. Now For any government it's not as simple as flicking a switch. There are careful transitions that need to be done and that is an energy transition Uh, we need to make sure that as we wind down dependence on oil and gas we are increasing our reliance on the alternatives and also moving the people who currently work in oil and gas into alternative jobs as well. So it's complicated, nobody denies that and we need to get that transition right but we're here in Glasgow in the midst of COP26 the warnings about the future, or perhaps lack of a sustainable future for the planet, if governments across the world do not act to limit global warming, are stark and simply cannot be ignored.
8: First Minister, have you voiced an opinion on the Cambo oil field that I believe Tom is referring to?
11: Yes, I have. Um, And what I've said is quite clear that just before I tell, well, before I tell, let me just explain for your viewers the background here. The Campbell uh, development already has a license. Uh, It's had a license for about 20 years. It now has to go through a process of permission to develop that field. And I have said it should not be given that permission unless there is a very rigorous climate assessment done. Uh, That's currently not the plan of the UK government, and I'm pressing them to do that. Now, there are many voices who would say no new oil field would ever pass uh, a stringent climate assessment, but at the very least it should be subjected to that test uh, because the plan right now to simply give it a green light uh, without that climate assessment assessment is not, in my view, consistent with our objectives to meet the aims of the Paris Agreement. So you are concerned about the, uh, the means, the end to getting to a
5: greener future. We've heard very confusing rhetoric out of COP26 and heading into this uh, confab. You said you hoped that a century from now, people would look back and describe Glasgow as the place which really took the correct fork in the road for our planet. Looking back on what's happened,
11: do you think that we can really say that? I don't know yet and we won't know until this COP26 summit concludes uh, hopefully on Friday Um, but yes I do hope not just for Glasgow's reputation although that would be nice Glasgow is often described as the birthplace of the industrial revolution it would be nice if future generations look back on Glasgow as as you say the point in history where the world took the correct fork in the road and managed to avert climate catastrophe are we going to get there? There's a lot of work to be done over the next few days I think there was over the course of last week uh, an increasing degree of tentative optimism about the potential outcome of this summit, but that has not yet... Been delivered. What do we need to see on Friday? Uh, we need to see action, real action that keeps this objective of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees alive. And that means near term commitments that will half global emissions by the end of this decade. It's not called a decisive decade for nothing. And secondly, we need to see the commitments made more than a decade ago to fair climate financing so that the developed world starts to repay its yeah. debt to the developing world, which is expensive experiencing the impacts of climate change and of course have done so little to cause the problem. So these are key tests of success and I really hope that we get there, but I don't underestimate the amount of work that negotiators have to do over these next few days.
8: Nicola, I think this is the first time we've spoken and not talked about Brexit. I think that's a success for us (laughs) both. Doesn't that feel good? feels good for me anyway. First Minister, thanks for being with us. Nicola Sturgeon (laughs) there, out of Glasgow.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening